This Hope podcast brought to you by the Centre for Public Christianity. Does the future feel uncertain to you? Overwhelming, even? Apparently we're lonelier and more anxious than ever. Whatever happened to hope? This year, CPX is rediscovering hope with clinical psychologist Lisa Aitken, who'll give a public lecture in Perth on October 26 and Sydney on November 1. Tickets at publicchristianity.org. Come along. We need all the hope we can get. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... Please be kind, especially when we don't know what's going on. So what I got? Movies are dreams that you never forget. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to The Watch List. We have a killer of a show this week, you know, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to have some fun talking about two films. Um, as we look through the look at film through the lens of faith, we're going to be looking at The Killer and also The Burial. Neither of them are related, even though the titles <laughs> sound like they might be. But again, my name is Russ Matthews with Real Dialogue, and my wonderful co-host is... Yeah, Laura Bennett from Hope 103.2. That's right. And we're going to be kind of going through and looking at it this week. Also, we're not only going to be looking at Michael Fassbender's um, new take on The Killer and also Jamie Foxx's latest film, The Burial. We're also going to be um, looking at some of what some of our friends of the watch list have been talking about um, kind of in the larger community and some of the things on film and faith. So we look forward to kind of introducing that in a way. But uh, hey, this week, um, we're going to be talking about the first bullet out of the gun called The Killer. Um, so da- David Fincher's, I know, just it has way too many opportunities. Just roll with it. Let's just roll with it. I'm so excited about this one. Okay, this one is actually based on a graphic novel by uh, Matt's Nolan. Uh, it's, it's a whole novel, graphic novel series um, called The Killer that kind of gives us a glimpse into the motivations and inner thoughts of assassins, of all things. And uh, The Killer, who actually is never named, but is played by Michael Fassbender, is on assignment in Paris. And while he's there, he's kind of sharing his thoughts on maintaining his success as a hired assassin his methodical and unemotional methods, um, and how he actually has a perfect record until this whole incident there in Paris where he eludes um, or actually misses his mark. And so as he goes back home, um, he realizes that most of the people that he really cares about all of a sudden are in threat. And so he has to go on kind of an assignment to try and kind of stop um, the kind of a, a, the fact that he is actually now the target. Mm-hmm. And so it's a fascinating excursion as he kind of become moves from being the one that targets others and now he is the target himself. So I can't wait to kind of hear what your thoughts are because I don't know, I really love this movie, but I'm also the director, David Fincher, is probably one of my favorites. But I'll let you start, Laura. What did you think of The Killer? Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. David Fincher does uh, incredible work and his 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 precision, I think, with this movie is what really stood out to me, especially for right. Michael Fassbender's character. There's something so detailed and and very immaculate about the way he approach, approaches oh. his craft, if you want to call it I like that. that. So word, I, immaculate. I really, well, yeah, it, it kind of came across that way, just the details that he focuses on in how he does things. But you also get, like, yes, they're representing those characteristics through the lens of somebody who is a hired assassin, but there's also a level of uh, a certain type of psychology, I suppose, that that makes me think of, right? Like the, the meticulous individuals and those that need this sense of control. And even in the way he describes his motivations, his lack of belief about there being a sense of justice, his lack of right. belief about there being any sense of, of why and reason to kind of what we do and then how that is dealt with and in some ways unraveled a little bit over the course of the movie. I really enjoyed that, that aspect of this story. 
Yeah. Oh, I thought, I think that this also is one of those films that where you have kind of the perfect content with the perfect director and the perfect lead actor. Cause Michael Fassbender has kind of been, he hasn't been around much since kind of the whole X-Men series came to a conclusion. And so to kind of see him back, but how his style, cause if you really think about this role, he doesn't talk a lot mm-hmm. on screen. He's actually, most of the times you're just kind of hearing his thoughts. And so there's a narrative kind of going on within it, but yet how he's able to convey this emotion and intensity and kind of desire or kind of direction that he's going as a, this assassin and also protecting those that he loves in a certain way was mm-hmm. fascinating. So I thought it was this great combination of those behind the scenes and also those in front of the camera to really being just an amazing film and it's not i wouldn't say this is one of david fincher's best films but i think that it is definitely a great one to kind of show his style mm. but then also when he has a great subject in front of him what he's able to do with that especially with michael in particular I, so i and again i think this kind of goes to fincher's style he definitely loves to go the psychology yeah. um kind of what the inner trying to convey the inner thoughts of his characters in so many of his films mm. and so i think with this he's able to kind of really be in his wheelhouse in so many different ways and uh so this is one that i i really enjoyed and it's one of those you just really kind of get immersed in um i, I feel like the the conclusion was kind of like, mm, I'm not sure if this is necessarily how I would have wanted it to see it finish, but I, I can see actually some of the his character kind of coming out as far as it kind of there's a mercy and grace that actually occurs within this character. Mm. But I'd love to delve into it because it's actually not only part of this movie, but also a part of the burial coming up here in a minute is the whole he does say in his kind of narrative within his head the Michael Fassbender or the killer's character yeah there is no justice in the world mm. um that really this world has no justice whatsoever and i found that compelling cuz i think it was a way for him to excuse why he did what he did you know yeah. they're kind of taking away the morality but i don't know what what your thoughts are cuz did the film kind of disprove that mentality after a while what do you, what do you, what do you think well, I feel like it sort of does sit the idea of justice, not not only within somebody facing the consequences for their actions, not only for, you know, wrongs being righted, but it kind of also, from my money, did suggest a sense of justice from like a personal perspective that there's, that even if we're never held to account in a sort of public setting for whatever our actions may be, I feel like there's a sense of internal justice that kind of ends up mm. playing out, which is a little bit right. of what this movie touches on. Like we do, we do actually feel the consequence of of wrongs or uh, sort of wrongs being righted as well in our own selves. And I feel like that's where this movie answers some of its its questions about justice because you can see the character, like as you say, the killer doesn't want there to be a sense of justice because that would mean so much for him and all of the things right. that he's doing and it would have exactly. to mean that there was a more human connection to all of these actions that he was doing, all of these assignments that he was given. given. If justice doesn't exist, that makes it all very easy. But I think you do see him realise over the course of this movie that even though he's chosen to believe that, it's not necessarily true. And so right. he kind of has to grapple with that a little bit. Yeah, I think I think that his morality is actually challenged because at the beginning he just comes off this this cold, calculated, methodical killer um, in a way. And it was fascinating as he kind of went through and kind of showed how he was able to do that, how he was even able to kind of just con- even handle the boredom that was going yeah. on of just sitting there watching and waiting for his mark to show up. Mm. But then for it to then flip on its 
ear in the sense that we're all of a sudden going, oh, you, but you want justice. You yeah. want justice in your own life yeah. and you desire that. And I think that that's, that's what I really found was compelling about this story was that what he was trying to show that, that there was no justice in the world, what actually went straight up against that when it definitely, mm. when it hit straight to his heart, which is what I think you were saying. But also I think that's what we have, um, you know, even from a biblical standpoint, you can actually go to the fact that we, that there is a God of justice and who mm. actually really sets the standard that is justice, um, that it's not necessarily even we that are setting the standard. I'm actually thankful that I'm not able to set the standard because some days you just don't, you don't necessarily want to see justice happening when you want something else to happen the way you want it to. But yet, thankfully, there is a standard bearer for justice and justice does exist, um, even though sometimes we don't necessarily see it in this very mm difficult world that we kind of live in. And you do bring up an interesting point about our motivations or our desire for justice, but only in certain situations. Like in the context of the killer, it's, it's, it is when it's flipped that he, that he starts to care about it a whole lot more. And that's probably true for us. Like we really want justice when we feel like we're the ones deserving of some kind of consequence. We're the ones deserving of that kind of outcome. But we're maybe not as conscious of it when somebody else is the person who needs justice. Exactly. Like how willing are we to fight for justice on somebody else's behalf was uh, was something that I think is a really good takeaway from this movie as well. I think so, definitely. And I think that people need to be aware this is a movie about an assassin. So there are there is violence in this film. There are different issues in the language that actually conveyed. So it's not necessarily one that we necessarily convey or want to embrace the nature of the film. But the film itself, I think, is really well done and does show that even even David Fincher in his as the director, this may not be his greatest film, but yeah. it definitely shows that even a great director can do something amazing with a very small story and really kind of put his own fingerprints all over it, which I found compelling. Yeah, and and to, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And to just mention some of David Fincher's other movies, for those who may not be so familiar, like this is the guy behind Gone Girl, Seven, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. There's so many others in his back catalog as well. But he definitely does have this fascination, as you said earlier, with the psychology of his characters and kind of going into these spaces and really exploring them as well. So he he is a director worth watching if you like these kind of movies. You know, and actually that, that brings up one of the points because actually over the over the weekend, um, we were kind of looking through some of the different discussions that are had. There's different groups that are talking about film and faith that we had. And there's this one group of guys, Nick and Caleb and, and Matt, who were kind of talking about David Fincher specifically. And in that, because he definitely kind of goes into what I would call the human condition in so many ways. He really looks at the psychology, what's going on, the inner workings of mankind. Because when, when you look at, like you mentioned, some of the films, I mean, Seven, and we're looking at the curious case of Benjamin Button. I mean, he's even been an Academy Award nominee. But, okay, my question for you today, Laura, and this is the question that these guys were asking. Would David Fincher be considered one of the greats when it comes to films? I mean, we just mm. talked about Martin Scorsese in the last episode. So how would you define it? Would you put David in that and why? Well, I don't think he goes up in the legend status. Like if there's there's and and that's not necessarily right. meaning that he's not, you know, deserving to be there necessarily, but I do think there's there's definitely more noted uh directors. There's definitely directors with much more kind of notoriety is is the way to kind of put it and that people are more aware of. But I do think he's a director that has a, a definite niche within the craft that he likes to pursue. 
And he definitely, he's got some, you know, real street cred with what he creates. Like Personally, oh, yeah. is he one of my favourite directors? I wouldn't really say so necessarily. But then I kind of, I'm a little bit all over the place with directors because sometimes I'll love a movie and then I pick one from over here and I pick one for over there. Like I think David Fincher probably is up there in terms of directors that, as you've mentioned, are really good at looking at the human condition, looking at the psychology of a character and telling that kind of story. So he certainly, yep. you know, sets himself apart in that way. But then when I look at the kind of movies that he's done, they are, like they're not necessarily the sort of top genre of film that I personally gravitate towards. So I, you know, I liked The Killer. I did see Gone Girl. There is something in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo that's really compelling, but they're not normally the kind of movies that I, I gravitate to. So I don't think I, I personally wouldn't be like, yes, he's up there. I love him, but I do recognize that he's somebody with a very particular uh, skill that he's very, very good at using when it comes to these kind of stories. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that that's, I think that's a great argument as far as looking at, because I, I am I'm a huge Fincher fan. I really do enjoy him as an artist. Uh, I think that he does. He really kind of delves into areas that most others. He's what he's able to convey is very different mm -hmm. um, than what you see out in kind of a lot of the mainstream filmmaking that's out there. Um, I Legend. I, I really like the fact that you kind of brought that up. I don't necessarily think that he can be into that category. I think that comes later on in your career, depending on you know even you know as you kind of see this, uh, you know the the Hitchcocks and the Orson Welles and even the Martin Scorsese's. You know that I would probably put into those or Steven Spielberg putting mm. into those that they kind of cross also all these different genres in different ways and really kind of make it happen. But I think that Fincher. Definitely has a unique vision and a unique way of being able to communicate a story and also show us the internal workings of his characters as well as the mm. external story and has an amazing eye. Uh, his his unique eye and the way of use of shadow and light that um, he has, you can definitely, when you're watching it from social network all the way through to seven, all the way through to the, to the killer, you can go, oh yeah, that's a... That's Fincher's style. You know, mm -hmm. this uh, there's a styling, which is similar, I would say, probably to maybe like an Alfred Hitchcock. You can kind of, oh, that's an Alfred Hitchcock film, you know, and yeah, you're just kind yeah. of knowing that they have their fingerprints on it. And so I would I would say he is a great director. Is he one of the greats? I think mm -hmm. that's something that gets determined later. Maybe, but I also so I, I also don't know that sort of people don't have to be the greats now. Like I think there's so many other directors that are doing great work that it's almost like people build their own kind of fan bases and whether or not they become great, whether or not they get that sort of legendary status. It I don't know that they're the ones that people are really appreciating the work of as much these days. Like I think of you know, Greta Gerwig with Barbie and yeah. Lady Bird. She is a phenomenal director. Like will she end up in that kind of legendary great status? Maybe. She's probably well deserving of it, but her art and her craft is so well done. Yeah, Ava DuVernay, who did, or yeah, how we, how we pronounce her name, Ava DuVernay. I'm going to go with that. I think so. I think you got it right. Yeah, just say it with confidence. But Exactly. <laughs> but she did Selma. That's a fantastic movie that was so brilliantly done. Like there's, I think there's these directors that have found their kind of pocket and even within the TV world as well. And it's like, they may do like one or two, 10 brilliant things and that's that, but it's like they've found their spot and they do it very well. Oh, I think so. I think, I, I, and also I think there's a subjectivity to it. Cause I mean, even within this discussion that we're having with my, with, with those guys that were kind of talking about it from on this, on this plane, you know, all of us have a different person, like a lot of them, you know, the sacrilegiously were going, well, I'm not really that much of a Martin Scorsese fan, but mm -hmm. I definitely love David Fincher or I really love, you know, the other, you know, save the Steven Spielbergs or others yeah. that are out there, Francis Ford Coppola. And uh, this kind of helps us to move from the killer to the burial. So we're now we're looking at 
<laughs> which it seems like a natural progression, but actually they're two completely different films and two different styles and also mm. different actors that are in it. Um, you, I don't know. Would you like to kind of tell us a little bit about um, yeah, yeah. The Burial? Absolutely. So in this one, you've got Tommy Lee Jones and Jamie Foxx in it as well. Jones plays Jeremiah Joseph O'Keefe. He's got a family-owned funeral home business throughout southern Mississippi, and he thought he had made this deal with one of the big funeral companies in the area that re- would really like help him out of his financial woes. We learn that he's in a lot of debt. This family business not going quite so well as he would like. Then we find out that the company that he's made a deal with hasn't been quite as honest as he thought they had. <laughs> they draw out this process and almost really bankrupts uh, this southern businessman. And so then Jeremiah decides to sue that company and goes and connects with Jamie Foxx's character, who is this incredible, incredible lawyer. He has a unique way of fighting cases, a lawyer by the name of William E. Gary, who is very shiny in so many ways, I'll put it that way. And then different things <laughs> unfold that. in the shiny. courtroom. Yeah, it's the way to describe it. But different things unfold in the courtroom and the private lives of both of these, these men. And they realize that this is going to be a case that tests their resolve and also tests basically a whole bunch of other kind of attributes of their character and is really definitely sort of this David and Goliath kind of story, like the the little guy up against the big guy. This is based on a true story. So you've got a courtroom drama that's going to grab people because of that aspect as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, come on! If they can make a movie about a funeral home director, oh yeah, and and him in a in a courtroom and make it compelling, I I, I um, my hats off to him because I mean, honestly, mm. it was great, and I think that Jamie Lee Fox as Will E. Grant. Uh, I mean, the guy has his own, you know, private jet and everything like that. But how, the, oh, Gary, sorry, Will E. Gary. And he just really just kind of delves into this character and makes it compelling. Because, I mean, we've seen all the courtroom dramas. We've seen courtroom films. Mm-hmm. And we've seen great actors and all those different characters and roles. You know, you got a few good men and all these different ones that you have. But this one was just fun because it was based on a true story. But then on top of it, it looks like Jamie Foxx was just having a blast. Mm. You know, and being this character, showing um, the importance of justice. I mean, justice was definitely one of the key key components to it, as far as looking at justice being done. You know, the big uh, the big corporation thought that they were well well outside of being able to be touched um, by this organization, especially a small little funeral home director at, at, based in the in the south of the mm. United States. But I, I felt that it kind of made itself a little bit, it took itself to the next level just because of Jamie Foxx's character. I mean, I love Tommy Lee Jones. He always plays the great crotch. He's played a, a crotchety old man for pretty much 30 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, and nails it. So why not? Why change? Academy Award. I mean, both of them are Academy Award winners, you know, and so they they both get it. But uh, I, I it was a it was a fun film. It was actually a nice surprise for me. It wasn't, mm-hmm. is this a great film? Is this a great courtroom drama? I know I don't necessarily have it as being one of my favorites, but I think that it definitely was one of those feel-good films that's worthwhile kind of discovering and and enjoying kind of, uh, you can sit back and just kind of enjoy the characters. Mm. And some of what they bring up about the play, like there there was a lot in it about the place of, as you've said, justice in the dynamics of this, but also faith is featured as well. And the identity that these men have and don't have in relation to how they perceive God and their community and their Mm. relationship to faith in, in some ways as well. But then also, like, I think particularly for uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character, with this family business, it's something that for him, it's not just about, like, fighting to win 
with the big corporations. It's also about a family-run business that he's hoped to pass on. There's, a, there's kind of a challenge to legacy and something to be said for the way that our mm. lives can be oriented in that way. Like how important is it, is it to us to leave something behind for those that are part of our family? How much of our reputation do we feel like is associated with how well we do in right. those kind of endeavours? Whether you're a business owner or not, it's like all of our lives are building something and what do we want that to look like? What do we want it to achieve? And then what do we want the legacy of what we've done with our lives to pass on to the next generation? That's a, oh, that's a great point. I really like that insight because I, I hadn't really even kind of even looked at it from that perspective. But then on top of it, also what you bring up about you know, I mean, because it does start off with uh, Jamie Foxx in the pulpit kind of preaching. It was it was sort of preaching. It was just kind of him talking, but really, it yeah. was preaching, you know, as it was. But does your faith, um, is it represented in the rest of your life? And mm. I think that that's one of the things that really can stand out. And I think that does come out in this film that, you know, even though there are some ethical issues that maybe you could question in any legal practice, um, Yet you could see that his desire for ethics, justice, and um, and the right thing to be done um, was was definitely something that drove him. And also the value of family. I, I found that both men really saw, even though they had different interpretations of how they would care for their family, um, that they really both valued family. And I think that this that really stood out in a lot of ways too. Yeah, and I think we like to see that. Like we like to see even in you know I think of the fascination with courtroom stories. Like my mind goes straight towards like in TV with suits and people love that like we love these kind of very different show to this movie but we kind of love this like stick it to the man find a way to do it like the the idea of people finding a pathway to an outcome and then the questions of morality and ethics along the way and then especially when we agree with the justice that's handed down there's something we enjoy about watching that we want to see this fight we want to see the battle we want to see the smarts that gets particular you know verdicts across the line or challenge as the case may be, I think we, I think there's something in us that likes to see whether it's like the little voice being heard or like the person of power being challenged. I think mm. we appreciate that. We like being able to see that someone can fight for us and somebody can make our voice heard and somebody can, you know, stand up when, when something needs to be stood up for. These movies in that show represent that in different ways, as well as just being straight up entertaining. That's right. I love that. The fact that we it's still we still need to be entertained. We still want to be a part of the story. We want to be a, see it happening. I mean, you get having all of these happen if it's on television or if it's on, in the, on the movie screen. And but you do want to see you do want to see the little guy kind of make it, you know, to yeah. come above and kind of rise above. And when they find that one little bit of evidence that all of a sudden makes it all of a sudden the opportunity for them to do that, you know, yeah. they're able to do it in a two hour span, even though most likely these things happened over months, if not years. And so yeah. um, I, I enjoyed the burial. I, I thought that I, th- I think it was it was great. It's Is it a classic? No, I mean, it's not. But it's definitely one worthwhile finding. And because I believe it's just primarily on Prime Video. So mm. if you're able to enjoy it, you're able to go through and do that well interestingly enough so we got so as we kind of hit towards the end of our our show uh, again we had some other um, friends of the show that were kind of having some discussions over this past since our past podcast and um so jamie fox and also tommy lee jones they both are academy award winners they both have been in some great films in their careers um but yet one of the discussions that i kind of got into was 
what defines kind of a classic? And so somebody, it was interesting because I, it was kind of between the, I think thanks to Michael and Michael, both of them were kind of having this discussion, even though there were more people in the conversation. Um, but what really defines a classic and what would you see as a classic? And it was interesting seeing, cause these two Michaels kind of come from different generations. And so some would not consider anything past the 1960s that can be defined as a classic <laughs> while many of us who were born well after that um, would definitely have some films that would be considered classics. Mm. I don't know. Do you have some of your favorite classics and would you consider a classic something that could actually be from the seventies, eighties, nineties, or even the two thousands? Well, I think for me, it's like, this is like the definition of vintage. Like what counts as vintage? What counts as classic? Like there's a, there's, <laughs> right. there's, there's a, there's a conversation about like timeline, point. like give me an, give me an era that equals classic. Give me an era that equals vintage. So you've got that debate in one respect. I feel like probably Maybe the way I would look at it is anything that's probably like a generation before you, that's kind mm. of classic in some in some sense. A time you were not alive in, that's right. gonna be a classic because for you it's it's from this past, whatever, you know, generation or era that might be. But then I think in terms of classics when we consider them from like a social cultural point of view, I think of it in that way, like a movie that becomes a classic because of what it spoke about at a certain time in history and how that's then, you know, trickled down or the these movies, like I think of um, The Color Purple or these right. these films that just become so kind of groundbreaking in whether it was the message that they spoke about, the style of storytelling that they had. To me, that makes a classic. Does this movie's social message, does this movie's idea resonate beyond, you know, the two hours or so that we sit and enjoy it in the cinema for, or is it something that actually has an, a sort of reverberating impact beyond that? And it doesn't have to be these big, heady kind of movies. It can be something like Jurassic Park, which is exactly. a classic purely because it was like so big and so amazing and so different. No one made a movie like that up until then in that way. And sure, it was also talking about really significant like scientific advancements and the possibility of, you know, people and how much right. power we have and are we playing God, etc. So there is this depth to it, but there's also this huge kind of social value and fun that comes from it as well. So to me, a classic is much more uh, from that perspective, the social impact side, as opposed to what year it was made. Right. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it was, it was, it was great. It was a great conversation to have. And I, I felt that it was really great because also what it did for me was it makes you want to go back and look at films. You know, you, I mean, cause I mean, for me, I mean, if you look back at say the wizard of Oz or um, it's a wonderful life or, you know, rebel without a cause, all these films that came from different decades, well prior to even being born um, are definitely worthwhile going back and seeing, even if, even if they are a different style and reflective of a different generation, or maybe even the different messaging, you know, maybe even some of the controversy that came around with like, say with gone with the wind, but I think that we can say that there are films that just definitely go into the classics category just because people, it, they have lived well beyond their time in cinema, mm -hmm. well beyond just being, they're iconic, they're, their lines are still being used. I mean, you can go to the Shawshank Redemption, you can kind of go to Blade Runner, mm -hmm. Star Wars. I mean, you, how can you say that Star Wars isn't a classic? It redefined cinema or even Jaws, you know? Yeah. And so you're looking at different films that we definitely can, I think, put into the kind of the classics category, mainly because they've lived well beyond the the directors, whoever wrote them, all these things in so many ways 
ways, but also they definitely still influence our culture in so mm. many different ways. I and think that's, it's a, that's what I love about movies. That's what I love about film. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think it's so much harder to be a classic now, though, because there is just so many movies. And because we're not all seeing the same handful, I don't know that classics right. exist now in the same way that they did. You know, in 20 and 30 years' time, everybody could well be talking about different movies that shaped their childhood that was that Jurassic Park for them or whatever, right? Like, exactly. I honestly, and because there's such a high turnover, the life of a piece of entertainment is so short. Like, even, you know, like, will Barbie be a classic? I don't know. Like, it, it in right. in sort of, yeah. if it came out in the 90s, it would absolutely right. deserve to be a classic because it would be the movie, right? But now it's like everyone's going to go, whoa, that was amazing. And we talk about these ideas. And we're like, hi, Barbie, to like all the people for maybe a month or two. But then it kind of fades away. Like we, there's such a high right. consumption. So it's like there's an engagement level that's super high, but then everything just moves along because the next next thing comes out. So I'll be curious to know what we consider classics in the next you know, few decades. Well, hey, I hope the watch list is around for the next few decades. <laughs> we can have this conversation in the next 10 years and see which ones are the classics. So we'll just kind of see what happens. But no, I mean, it's a great conversation. And we thanks to our friends here, uh, the friends of the, the watch list, as they kind of look at what are the classics. Love it also to hear from you guys. Like, tell us, what do you think are the classics? What are the modern classics? And what are some of the golden classics that you would have loved, uh, that you still love to see, you still enjoy watching? Maybe you can't even get on streaming, but you can only get on DVD still, you know. So these are great ones to be able to have that conversation, but also it's something that really touches your heart and really kind of gets you to talking about movies and also hopefully talking about your faith um, in the process. Cause I think a lot of these films really get us there um, in so many different ways. Well, we kind of hit the end of the, the watch list. Probably the, what we have to do first is we need to go through and say the two films that we talked about, the killer and the burial. Well, would you put them on your watch list, Laura? I would put the killer on my watch list. The burial has a good story. It teaches you a lot about like the death care industry, which you know what? <laughs> All of us are going to have some connection with at some point, but probably don't know nearly enough about. Uh, so I appreciated right. it from that point of view. But I did, I personally enjoyed the killer a little bit more. So I would put it up there. And then the burial, it's like, yeah, okay. If you, if you have time, watch it, but it's okay if you don't. Okay, there you go. So Laura says the burial is not to die for. But definitely the killer is. And so it is definitely, I, I would definitely, the killer goes on the list. And actually, I think we'll actually move into my, creeps into my top 10, just because there just aren't a lot of movies coming out right now. But still, it is it is really a good film and worthwhile seeing. The Burial, if you're looking for a good feel-good film, something that you can just kind of sit back and not have to think too much about, um, is definitely worthwhile engaging with. So as far as making the watch list, it's kind of like, yeah, but most likely won't make it much past this year. So, uh, but anyway, we come to the end of the watch list. Thanks so much for being a part of um, the whole discussion. We thank you to all of our friends out there who are who are kind of still having those conversations even during the week. Um, make sure you're subscribing to the podcast as well as the other podcasts here at Hope 103.2. Um, and also make sure you check out our reviews at Hope 103.2 and realdialogue.com. And also make sure you can also see our reviews actually come up on YouTube. So you can see their YouTube channels there. I'd hope one of 3.2 at the podcast section. So thanks again for being a part of the watch list. Until next time, grab your seat, grab some popcorn, get out to see the movies, and we'll see you next time on the watch list.